Welcome to Sharp Waves, a podcast from the International League Against Epilepsy. Our episodes cover epilepsy research, clinical care, career development, and issues in diagnosis and treatment from around the globe. We're joined today by Dr. Conrad uh, Wextel, one of uh, the leads of the MELT project, um, and MELT stands for Multicenter uh, Epilepsy uh, Lesion Detection Project. He joins us from the Welcome Center of Human Neuroimaging in London, UK. This project uh, was uh, published last year in Epilepsy, and it really brings together a large neuroimaging cohort of patients, including MRI lesion maps and demographic clinical and surgical variables using open science practice. Hi, uh, yeah, I'm, I'm Conrad. I am a, a senior research fellow at the Wellcome Centre uh, in UCL in London, uh, and I work on methods to automatically an- analyse MRI scans, particularly uh, in children and adults with focal cortical dysplasia. The biggest part of this role is the multi-centre epilepsy lesion detection project. Uh, can you tell us a bit more about how this project, how the idea of this project came together and some background really on this topic and really why the study was done? Those are big questions, but really the, the main idea behind the project. Sure, absolutely. Uh, we work on focal cortical dysplasia, which uh, is the leading cause of drug-resistant epilepsy in children and a leading cause in adults. The aim of the project is so these, these lesions are very difficult to uh, diagnose on an MRI scan, but if you can diagnose them, you can offer surgery and this can be a cure for patients with seizures. And the co-lead of the project, who is Dr. Sophie Adler, uh, was doing her PhD at Great Ormond Street Hospital, where they see a lot of these patients. And I was doing my PhD at Cambridge University, and we decided that this was an ideal candidate for these computational tools we've been developing to identify these lesions automatically. So we, we identified a small cohort from Great Ormond Street of patients with focal cortical dysplasias and created a software that did a reasonable job at automatically identifying them. This was now five or seven years ago. And, and the, the key step, I think, that the real novelty that we introduced was sharing all our code. So sites around the world started to use the code themselves, got back in touch with us saying how it was working. And based on all this uh, positive feedback, we decided that it'd be a great idea to to join all these sites together and create this multi-center project. Our aim was to create a really large neuroimaging cohort of patients with focal cortical dysplasia. And together that made this large MRI cohort with all this rich clinical data. And that's where we are today with the multi-center epilepsy lesion detection project. So um, MELD as we call it. And so we have these two first publications. The first one is Atlasing. So we have this rich data set and we really thought it was our responsibility to make the most of it and learn things about FCD with this 600 patient cohort that couldn't be found with smaller data. And the second paper, which is just out in Brain, is this automatic lesion detection tool, which we now offer, again, as an open tool for sites around the world to use. This is fantastic work, and it must be a work of uh, sort of many, and as I see in this paper, work of many people, many ideas, and uh, many, a lot of data. How was the data compiled? And what, and, and, and also addressing the difficulties that come with the heterogeneity of the data uh, of this kind and, and this source and magnitude. That's a great question. I, I think it's important to say the MEL project is, we have 22 sites well, uh, 70 or 80 collaborators, and they're all really fantastic collaborators. Everyone's put a lot of work into this because they think that the problem is important and they give us 
time creating the data set. They give us feedback on all the work that we're doing and help writing the manuscripts and, and sharing the work. And I think that it wouldn't be possible without all that, that buy-in from around the world. Each site processes the data locally, the MRI data, and makes it as anonymous as we could do. So this is we only receive these relatively uh, de-identified feature, features rather than the raw MRI scans. And this is what we get sent. And so we then have to go about harmonizing it, as you said. So every site has a different scanner uh, and different sequences. And this is a, a really big challenge. It's, it's a challenge not just for epilepsy, for all of imaging. And so again, we have to reach out to collaborators who, who, are, who are experts in this harmonization. And we've developed tools with them for bringing the MRIs together, making them look like they came from the same scanner so that we can treat it as a single, very large cohort of patients to do our analysis. If you can tell us a little bit more about the masking, uh, I um, just the masking technique that was used and whether um, at the, each center would then identify the FCD or were they all being masked and then transferred to your center and you were um, and they were being um, analyzed there? Uh, it's a real uh, kind of a, a key thing that we think about now is, is how to get consistent masking. So in the current study, radiologists or expert neurologists at each site would do the masking on the MRI scan in 3D, and that would be sent to us. And this is what we use for our analyses. As a, as a separate small side project within our own site, we got three very experienced radiologists to mask the same 10 patients. So we have three examples of different people masking them. And they, of course, all found the lesion in roughly the same place, but they're not the same masks. So everything that we we then find as this you have to kind of bear in mind that there's human variability in, in how these are being masked. And it's a kind of an unavoidable issue, uh, we, but really kind of motivates the need for these automated tools to get objective diagnoses of where the abnormality is rather than uh, the, these intervariable, uh, the radiologist dependent masks that we're currently dependent on. Um, what's really nice is that when you look at where the three maskers look and you look at where this new mailed algorithm identifies, it agrees very nicely with the three maskers but as though it was a fourth masker. So there's a bit of variability there. So can you tell us about the main findings of this study? Great. So this first atlases of lesion location study, um, we put together all these lesion masks. We have 580 lesion masks. And the first thing we wanted to look at is just where these lesions are located because FCDs happen in the cortex and in theory they can happen anywhere. And that's what we find, that you do find them everywhere in the cortex. But the, there was a really striking non-uniform pattern. Certain parts of the brain were much more frequently affected than others. So the temporal pole, superior frontal sulcus and frontal pole, we found many more lesions. And this is particularly true for the FCD2s. We think this is a really striking finding and also very informative. If, if someone has a suspicion there's a lesion and they think it's in the superior frontal sulcus, it's quite likely to be the case. So that, that seems like a very useful tool. The second interesting finding that I like to focus on is, is this age of epilepsy onset. So you can set, you can ask whether having a lesion in a particular brain area is associated with having an older or younger age of onset. And we found that lesions in the occipital cortex or, or in the sensory cortex tended to have an earlier age of onset. And then I think the last one that I, I think is particularly of clinical relevance was that we looked at whether where your lesion is impacts the likelihood of seizure freedom. And lesions that are around eloquent cortex, so the visual cortex, the motor cortex, and the language areas, were associated with much lower likelihoods of seizure freedom. And what we think here is that because the lesions next to eloquent cortex, the surgeons are being deliberately cautious. You don't want to take out 
elegant cortex. And therefore, there's an increased likelihood that some of the lesion is left behind or some of the epileptogenic tissue is left behind and, and continues to cause seizures. I know you had included uh, pediatrics and adults. I wonder if this, this deferred, the seizure freedom rates deferred in pediatrics versus adult patient, because sometimes uh, in the pediatric populations, the surgeons, because of the neuroplasticity and age, may be a bit more, um, so to say, you know, generous with the resection compared to adults where they have sort of less uh, room for uh, plasticity. We didn't look directly at that, but one other interesting thing that we did see is common with some of the other findings in the literature. There is a small effective duration. So if you have the surgery earlier, younger, you're more likely to have a good seizure freedom. What, what were the main implications of the findings of, of the results, as, as you would like to put it? So I think the first thing is that um, one thing we see is, is these quite a large duration of epilepsy in our cohort, so typically around 10 years. And I think that given the current view that dura- longer duration is, is less good for outcome and less possibly good, less good for cognitive outcomes, as a kind of motivation to, to move things on earlier. And one way we can go about doing that is by getting diagnoses earlier. So SCD is really difficult to diagnose. And one reason for this delay may be the delays in being diagnosed on an MRI scan and sent to a surgical center. So I think one of the key takeaways for us was that tools for automated diagnosis at first, at first presentation could be very beneficial in reducing the duration of epilepsy. The second one is this outcomes uh, relating to eloquent cortex, again, we think that this really motivates the, the, the development of automated tools for identifying exactly how large the lesion is, because providing that to the surgeons can make a much better surgical plan, much more um, data-driven decision about whether you're going to leave some of that lesion rather than doing it by accident because you're worried about removing eloquent cortex. And then I think the last thing is this, this lesion map, which is, uh, I think, a really good guide for if you can't find the lesion, look harder in these particular areas. Was there a specific focus on patients that had been identified as MRI negative? And what was the, what was the detection rate using your method, specifically in patients that were that clinically went through with the surgery, um, having had an, a negative MRI? I think that's a great question because the MRI negative is is one of the key groups we're looking to help diagnose. So these are patients who scan is reviewed by a radiologist and at some point on first first viewing they can't see an, uh, an abnormality so they call it MRI negative. Roughly a third of our patients are MRI negative so that's kind of in keeping with the general background literature and this was for us the really interesting group to test our algorithm on. So we trained an algorithm based on these MRI features to, to learn what lesions look like and predict them on new patients and we're picking up around 70% of all the lesions in general, but for the MRI negatives, we're picking up 62%. So that seems to us like a really big group that we could be helping with. So these are patients that were missed at some point. If you'd had this report of where the algorithm thinks the lesion is, you could have a second look at that area and say, actually, there is something subtle going on there. Well, that's that's wonderful. They pose the biggest challenge, as as you pointed out, patients who are MRI negative. From, from, from what you say, the tool is available for everybody to use. I guess my question is, how can you know people with clinical background, with no uh, computational background, uh, be using this tool? You know, these are sort of fast-paced, day-to-day physicians that also may not have a lot of time to spare uh, reviewing I- images. So how can they incorporate it in their clinical practice, given that it can be very impactful and change outcome? 
key to everything we do with the Mel project is open science. So we definitely make all our code available. We've made our code available um, at our uh, GitHub, so, so a, a, a website where you can download the code. We have workshop, video workshops of how to run the code on your own machine. And some clinicians at hospitals have downloaded it and started using it. In addition, we are working with some partner hospitals to run this algorithm for them. So at Great Ormond Street, we are if they suspect an FCD, they said they tell us that this is this is a likely candidate. This is also true at Queen Square. So those are the two hospitals at UCL that we're working with, and they send us the MRI scan. We ran it and we put it back in. I think making this scalable so that anyone who wants to run this algorithm on their their, their local MRIs is, is is a real challenge for us. And this is what we're actively working with people to improve because, as you say, it, it is mostly a software that requires a bit of computer expertise to use. I think the key thing to say is that if you're interested in running this on your patients at your hospital, do get in touch with us. We're just keen to get people set up with this. We've seen it helping. We're, we're delighted to when a, site, a hospital sends us an example of when they run it and it works. That's kind of why we did all of this. So uh, do get in touch with us and we'd, we'd really love to help set you up running this on your own patients. Thank you. Um, so, um, and then uh, I'd like to ask about if we can briefly discuss the, the, the strengths and limitation of this study. Yes. So I think one of the things that this multi-center approach has enabled us to do is, is see a whole variety of patients that's different histological subtypes, that's patients scanned on different scanners, scanned at different ages. We've got lots of children in the study and lots of adults from around the world. And all of this heterogeneity really strengthens the algorithm and being able to, you know, seeing 600, it's much more likely to understand what it'll look like in the 600th patient. I think that's that was a really key development for us because showing it works on one hospital is one thing, but showing it works on 20 is, is, a, is a completely different challenge. I think at the moment, there's always ways to improve algorithms, and this is definitely something we're working on. So I'd say that the, the kind of biggest drawback at the moment is that we still find false positives. There are, even if you put normal patients through a scanner, maybe 40% of them, the algorithm will think something looks a bit funny. So it's definitely not ready for use without someone checking and you know confirming with other modalities. And to that end, we are still working on the MELD dataset to improve the algorithm. And we're launching a second MELD study to get a much larger dataset and with much more diverse histologies, so including other causes of vocal epilepsy. And the aim here is to make a much more robust tool that that again, you know, new version, better performance, no better reliability. For the younger investigators that are listening to our podcast and are interested in the work that they're doing, how can they be involved? And this could really either involve uh, physicians that are on the receiving end where they want to use your tool to be able to help their patients, or whether these are investigators that are like to be involved in, in more of a research aspect of this. So I think there's kind of three ways that we're really moving forward with this, and, and this impacts how people can get involved. The first is to figure out how and where it could be used in a clinical scenario. So we, we have a clinical trial using it as a targeting for SEGs. Uh, we're attempting to use it as being presented in MDT study. Uh, and we're encouraging sites around the world to use it locally and give us feedback on, on how it is to use. And all of this will help us understand where it's best and, and, and in which different scenarios it's used best. So if you're interested in running the code and it'd be incredibly helpful for us for, to have feedback on that, that's one really valuable step. 
The second is that we are running a second study now, uh, male focal epilepsies, and we're at this stage inviting sites to join. Um, this includes definitely includes young researchers who would like to be part of a multi-center study, are interested in open science. As I said, all our code is openly available. We run collaborative um, workshops. So it's a great way of kind of getting involved in a, in a large-scale study with lots of senior researchers, but also you know, people who are new and uh, energized. And we, we value all the contributions that we receive. I guess if you're interested in joining, please email us at uh, mel.study at gmail.com. Um, and this would be either if you're interested in the technical aspects of lesion detection or if you have, you know, one, two, it doesn't matter how small your, your patient cohort is and you'd like to contribute, please get in touch. We'd love to, to, to make our cohort as large and diverse as possible. We run uh, teleconferences roughly every two to three months. So we don't want to burden people with too many meetings, but those are open to basically anyone who's interested in the MEL project. It's completely open, so we do share what, what we're working on at the time, but it's also a way of kind of getting a feel of the project, asking what it takes to become involved or just, you know, uh, assessing whether you'd like to join. Physicians, if they run the code, you still, uh, from my understanding, is that your team would still like to review the results given the fact that the algorithm is, is still being perfected and there are some false positives. That's a really good point to make. And I definitely want to emphasize it's not a licensed diagnostic device. It's still what we'd call a research tool. So it's definitely to be used with the expertise of a, a radiologist and clinical team. Uh, from our point of view, we don't have control over who's using it. You can download it. You can use it as, as you like. What we'd really like to hear is how you're finding using it giving us feedback about it's working really well for these patients or even we just like seeing a screenshot everyone every so often of saying this was a, a child with MRI negative epilepsy and look this has really helped that that really makes our day <laughs> yeah I, I can imagine um, and before and as we conclude I'd like to hear your sort of the final points uh, that you like to make anything that we didn't talk about that uh, that you'd like to point out and essentially take home messages uh, for our listeners uh, I think I'd like to say that we're really grateful to the whole uh, epilepsy community to, for kind of embracing MELD and this open science approach that we have 22 sites who are giving up their research time or clinical time to collect the data, share it with us, share their expertise, give us advice. You know, we're all making this tool together and it's and everyone has the, the motivation of, of providing patients with better diagnostic tools. And I think that's a really nice uh atmosphere within the epilepsy research community that has enabled this to happen. Thanks for listening to Sharpwaves. Our content is meant for informational purposes only and not as medical or clinical advice. The International League Against Epilepsy is the world's preeminent association of health professionals and scientists working toward a world where no person's life is limited by epilepsy. Find more Sharpwaves episodes wherever you get your podcasts or at ilae.org.